Good morning, good morning, good morning, church. How's everybody doing this morning? Welcome to the 1045. Man, it is so good to see you. So good to be in a space where we are having two services now. If you're brand new with us, we've been uh, at one service at 10 o'clock for the last couple of years since we came out of COVID. Uh, and we have gone to two services because we need to create more space. Um, so as you look around, you'll notice we've got some room to fill in and that's okay. That's a good thing. Um, and for those that serve back in Discover Kids, they're incredibly grateful that we now have some extra space for kiddos. And I saw, I saw Mallory Skinner in church today for the first time in like two years because she serves every week back in Discover Kids. So uh, glad that we can create a rhythm for some of our Discover Kids folks uh, to be in the room with us as well. Hey, you are catching us in week four and our final week of a series that we have called Who's Your One? And this series has been designed to both inspire and empower you towards personal evangelism. What is personal evangelism? It's sharing Jesus with other people. And here's the reason why. Our, our vision as a church is we want to see our city changed by Jesus one life at a time. I want you to notice, like, our vision as a church is to not get as many people at church as possible. Like, I'm less concerned about how many people come to church, and I'm way more concerned about how many people are going to heaven. Amen? And so here's what I hope. I hope that as you look around and you see some of these empty seats, I want you to think about these empty seats, not just being empty seats at church, but representative of empty seats in heaven that are waiting to be filled by people who were close to us, but far from God that have not yet placed their faith in Christ. And so this, this series has been designed and wired for us to be inspired and empowered to go do this thing um, because we just believe the best way that we're gonna see our city change is if each one reaches one to go to heaven. And so that's what we've been doing. So I'm glad that you're here. Before we jump into the message today, I wanna tell you about where we're going starting next week. I'm so incredibly excited about the teaching series that we're going into starting next week. The teaching series is called Man up. Man up. Now here's the deal. Um, we, we are all familiar of things that have happened in the news, um, sometimes in our own personal lives, about some men who have royally jacked some stuff up. Amen? I, here's the thing. I, I just believe that, that the world doesn't need more toxic masculinity. What the world needs is more godly men. And here's what I believe, that every single boy that has ever been born, God created them and wired them and designed them to be godly men. But the problem is, is they are oftentimes not trained and they're not prepared to be godly men. And as a result, we see a lot of this in the world today where a lot of, a lot of men who look like men, but they live and behave like boys. And God is calling us, fellas, to man up. Now, ladies, you might be hearing this and thinking like, well, that's a series for dudes. So I guess I'll just not be here. Um, I, I wanna encourage you to lean in because here's the deal, ladies. If you have a man or want a man, if you have a son or want a son, if you have a grandson or want a grandson, you are gonna learn about some of the things that help boys become men. We're going to talk about why biblical masculinity is so vitally important to our world, to our families, to our culture. We're going to talk about how to become godly biblical men, and we're going to be challenged to go and be about the process of being godly men. So starting next week, we are going to man up. 
All right, I'm excited about this. I believe that God is gonna do some awesome things. So invite somebody that, you know, and you gotta be careful with the invite to a series like this. Hey, bro, uh, my church is doing a new series called Man Up, You Need It. Come on. Okay, or perhaps you're dating or married to somebody that, you know, faith in church. And Hey, babe, uh, preacher man said we're starting a new, new uh, uh, series um, so that boy, men will stop acting like boys and start behaving like men. We, we'll, I'd like for you to, you know, next week. I would not encourage you to do it that way. But just say, hey, uh, being a man is difficult. And so we're going to talk about how to do it better. And that's where we're going in this series. I want to start today with a, uh, a picture and a question. How many of you know what this is? How many of you said donkey? Don't, you can raise your hand. I mean, you said it, so you got to own it now, right? Anybody say donkey? <clears throat> we had somebody in the first service say horse, right? It's, it's a mule, all right? It's a mule. And here's the, I grew up in Arkansas, uh, in Northeast Arkansas. I grew up back in the backwoods country, but here's the, I didn't, I didn't spend time on farms. I didn't grow up around farm animals. Um, and so I just thought like a mule was like a, you know, another word for a funny looking horse. Um, but it wasn't until my freshman year of college when I enrolled at the University of Central Missouri, became a mule, that I learned that a mule was not a horse and it definitely is not a donkey. I didn't know that. And I don't know if any of y'all know that. So I would like to talk for a minute about mules. You go, oh my Lord, preacher man talking about mules that I come to the right church service today. I don't know. Let me tell you a couple things about mules. Uh, mules are the perfect hybrid of a male donkey and a female horse. I'll let y'all figure the rest of that out. And it is incredibly and perfectly bred to be one of the most effective and efficient work animals on the planet. Why is that? Well, mules are more patient, they're hardier, they eat less and live longer than horses, but they are less obstinate and more intelligent than donkeys. They are incredibly docile, hardworking, low maintainable. This is the reason why in pretty much any culture across the globe for generations, the most popular, the most prominent work animal is not a workhorse, it is a mule. Let me tell you something else about mules. Mules are sterile. Mules cannot reproduce. So the life cycle of a mule is that it is born, it lives, it works, it serves its master, and it dies. And that's the end of the story. There is no legacy of mules. There is no lineage of mules. There is nobody who has ever wanted a mule that went and talked to a mule breeder like you would a dog breeder or a horse breeder and said, I would like to see the lineage, the pedigree, and the paperwork of this mule, please. Nobody does that because mules cannot have offspring. I want to do this as an intro to our message today because here's what I want you to understand that I have spent the last several weeks, we have been walking through this series called Who's Your One? because we have been trying to present God's word and God's truth and, and been inviting the spirit of God to come and, and speak to us and to, and to, and to convict us and to, and to change what needs to be changed, all for this one express purpose, because God does not want you to become a spiritual mule. God does not want for you 
as a human or as a follower of Jesus to come to know Christ for, as, for salvation, to, to live your life as a follower of Jesus and to, and to go to church and to read your Bible and to pray and to serve and to, and to give and um, you know, do different things like that. And then when you die, for there to be absolutely no spiritual legacy or spiritual genealogy or spiritual lineage after you're gone. God wants for all of us as followers of Jesus to live in such a way that we create a spiritual legacy, that we, we reproduce ourselves, not just in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense, so that when you die and when you go to heaven, that there will one day be scores of people who are there, not because of the church you went to, not because of the preacher man, but because of you. God doesn't want you, he doesn't want me, he doesn't want us to become spiritual mules. And so critical is this, and so important is this, that we believe to the mission of God, to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that we have incorporated this into our core values. And no, we don't have the word mules in our core values. But what we do have as one of our core values is this, that we want to reproduce ourselves. Now, we're not just talking about physically. Y'all have been doing a great job of that, by the way. Part of the main reason why we had to go to two services because we got too many babies in the nursery. So, good job. No, we talk about reproduce ourselves, that we, we, we embrace the call to expand God's kingdom by urgently investing in others that we are looking to invest into people's lives spiritually so that God's kingdom can be expanded so that more people will be in heaven with us when we get there. What I want you to see today is I'm gonna share with you a passage of scripture in one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. So if I get a little bit extra today, I do not apologize. I love this passage of scripture. And I'm gonna show you today how one person who had all kinds of hangups, issues, and problems was used by God to turn an entire town upside down. What I wanna do before we jump into that today is I wanna take a moment and pray for you because I just feel so compelled by the Spirit of God with this message today that we would be challenged, that we would be redirected, that we would be changed by the message of God's word today to understand what our role and what our responsibility is as a follower of Jesus and not just what our responsibility is, but I want you to see the possibility of what happens when we do what God has called us to do when it comes to evangelizing and sharing our faith and our story with others. Let me pray for you. God, I come to you today and I pray for every single person that is in this place, every single person that is listening online. God, I pray that you would move and stir in their hearts from this incredible story in John chapter four. God, that, that, that we would see that there is nothing that disqualifies us from being used by God to change people's lives. God, I pray against the voice of the enemy that would want nothing more than to convince us that, that our circumstance or our character flaws or, or maybe even the culture are, are things that should be uh, impediments or things that would convince us that, that we can't be used by God. I pray, God, that you would break through all of that noise and nonsense to help every single person today see that they can absolutely be used by you to not only change someone's life, but change the world around them. I lift them up today and Jesus' name. And everybody said, 
Amen. Here's the deal. Open up to John chapter four. John chapter four today, and we're gonna be starting verse three, and it says this. Uh, If you're with me today, let me hear you say amen. Amen. If you don't have it, we got the verses on the screen. We got your back. It's on my, kind of my back, but we got your back. It says this, he left Judea, that's Jesus, and departed again to Galilee. So Jesus is moving from one place in the Middle East, uh, in Israel, from Judea up to Galilee. And verse four, it says, and he needed, but he needed to go through Samaria. Now, this little, this little verse right here could be pretty innocent and just kind of blaze and, and burn right through it, but it's important that we don't do that because in this one little verse tells us uh, there's a lot that we need to understand to understand why he needed to go to Samaria. Several hundred years before the events of John chapter four, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And in 1 Kings chapter 16, we learn that Samaria became the capital city of the northern kingdom. Fast forward several generations to 2 Kings chapter 16, and what we find is that God has grown frustrated with the northern kingdom because they have brought in one evil king after another that has done evil in the sight of the Lord. And instead of leading God's people to God, these evil kings have led God's people to worship other gods. And God has finally reached his limit. And so what God does is he sends the Assyrians, which was the global superpower at the time. The Assyrians come in and they overwhelm and they overtake the Northern Kingdom. And the Northern Kingdom of Israel is not the only kingdom that they did this to. They were constantly expanding. They were constantly taking ground. They were constantly overwhelming and overtaking and besieging other nations, other kingdoms. And as they did, they would bring some of the survivors of those those, uh, advances, they would bring them back to Samaria and resettle them there. And the Jews who remained there, over time, they began to grow friendly with some of these other people. They began to like some of these people. They even began to marry some of these people. And as a result of this intermarrying of these different backgrounds and cultures was also an intermarrying of different religions and faiths. And so many of these Jews who lived in Samaria wound up taking as a spouse someone from another culture and eventually ended up worshiping those other gods. In this way, Samaria was this incredible melting pot of cultures, of people, of races, of ethnicities and diversities. In a lot of ways, um, ancient Samaria was very much like modern day America. We are a huge melting pot of all kinds of nationalities and people. Listen, I tell people I'm from Arkansas, which some people hold against me, and that's okay. I've had people tell me that they automatically deduct IQ points when I tell them I'm from Arkansas. Then when I begin to talk, they take a few more, and then they just kind of feel like I've earned that. But the reality of it is, is I am like many of you. I am a purebred mutt. I have bloodlines from, um, uh, from uh, Scottish, Irish, Greek, German, and Macedonian bloodlines all running through my body. Like I, I couldn't pin any one of them down if I wanted to. In a similar way, that's how a lot of us are. That's kind of what was going on in ancient Samaria. And so the, the true Jews, the, the purebred, pure bloodline Jews would oftentimes view Samaritans with much disdain. They kind of view them, it was very much a racial division because they viewed them as impure, impure and as half-breeds. They were not true Jews. 
And so great was the disdain that Jews had for Samaritans that anytime they were moving as Jesus was from, uh, from Galilee, or I'm sorry, from Judea up to Galilee, that they would, instead of taking the very direct right route through Samaria, all right, that's kind of like from going from St. Louis to Denver, instead of going through Kansas City, they went up to Minneapolis. They took the scenic route because they didn't want to go through Samaria. They didn't want to be in Samaria. They didn't want to be accused of being seen, talking to somebody from Samaria. There was absolute hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. Scripture tells us that it was about the sixth hour, so it's about noon. So Jesus is on this journey. He's been walking. It's hot. And he comes into Samaria and he finds a well. Verse seven says this, and a woman of Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, before you trip out and be like, oh, Jesus is like super chauvinistic, like where's chivalry? Chivalry's dead. No, no, no. In this culture, this is kind of how it worked. But the very fact that Jesus is talking to this woman shows and is evidence that Jesus constantly broke cultural barriers for the purpose of people knowing that he loves them and cares for them. Verse nine says, and the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, right? So I've explained the cultural problem that this woman is facing. Let me take a moment and talk to you about the circumstance that she's facing. In their day, it was common that women would go together to the well. The well was kind of a central uh, place of, of, of community. It was a central place of conversation because everybody needed clean water. And what would typically happen in this culture is that the women would get together early in the morning and they would walk together and they would meet together at the well. They would draw the well that was required for their family for the day. They would spend some time talking together and then they would go about their way. The fact that this woman is by herself and not at the well in the early morning, but instead in the heat of the day tells us that she didn't get the invite. She, she's, she's the woman that she's the one that like when you're at, at Starbucks or you're at lunch with some of your friends and somebody walks in that you're kind of close to, but kind of not. And you kind of on purpose didn't invite them. And you kind of go, oop, they're here. This woman is that person. She didn't get invited to the Sunday brunch. She didn't get invited to be a part of the soccer mom minivan caravan. She gets left out in the cold and she has come now out of necessity because nobody wants to be around her, she has come to the hottest part of the day, the most uncomfortable part of the day, to draw water. And not only this, she's coming to the well after the water, after a certain amount of time of them lowering their buckets to get the water out, then the sand and the sediment would stir up in the water and they would oftentimes wait for the next morning to get water so that the sediment would drop down and so that they could have clean drinking water. This woman doesn't get that option. This is the circumstance that she's in. And, can, and as she is in this moment, I can't imagine the amount of loneliness that she feels. Can you imagine the isolation? I mean, she lives in a town that the rest of the Jews have already classified as, 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 as half-breeds, as, as misfits, as outcasts. I mean, she's like the toy on the island of misfit toys that the misfit toys don't want to hang out with. And into this circumstance, Jesus walks, he has a conversation with her, and then he makes her an incredible offer. Verse 10, Jesus said to her, 
If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is doing what he does so well. He takes something that is real and physical, a very real well that has real water for the purpose of quenching a very real physical thirst. But what Jesus says is he takes it and he pivots it and he uses it now to talk about a spiritual truth. And what Jesus is conveying here is that, listen, you can drink of this well and your physical thirst will be quenched for a moment, but you will become thirsty again. I'm here to tell you that if you take of the living water that I have to offer you, you will never thirst again. The, the, the longings and the desires in your soul, the things that cause you to ask some of the great questions of, of why am I here and, and is there anything more to life than this? Jesus is saying that, that if you come to me, I will provide a living water that never runs empty, that will never run dry and will always quench the thirst inside of your soul. The woman hears this and she's, she's intrigued by it. She's interested, but she's also a little confused. Notice what she says. Verse 11, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Now, little, little historical context here. When she makes mentions Jacob, what she's referring to are the patriarchs of the Jewish people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the, the fathers of the Jewish people. So, so even though that she is considered an outcast by most true Jews, she still identifies with the lineage of the Jewish people. And so she's asking, are you greater than our patriarchs? Are you greater than the fathers of our people? Jesus looks back at the well and says to her, verse 13, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of living water springing up into everlasting life. It's never gonna run dry. And not only will it provide sustenance for your immediate need, it will provide sustenance for your soul that leads beyond just this life, but into eternal everlasting life. What Jesus is offering this woman is salvation. What Jesus is offering this woman is eternal life. What Jesus is offering this woman is a life very different than the one that she's been living. She's offering, he's offering this woman a life of hope, a life of victory, a life of peace. I want you to watch what happens. Verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 15. Then the woman said to him, sir, give me this water. I'm in, I'm a buyer. How much? How do I get it? What do I need to do? Notice what she says next. This is significant. Give me this water, why? That I may not thirst and nor come here to draw. She's not just talking about I'd like to have water so I don't just have to come to the well and get water. What she's talking about is that she's asking for her circumstance to change. She said, I want this living water. I am so tired of my life. I am so beat up and frustrated by my life. I live in a town of misfits and outcasts and among them, I am a misfit and an outcast. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me. Nobody sees me. Nobody wants to spend time with me. I am alone and I am in isolation. I, I hate the way that I have to live this life. Sir, where do I get this living water so that I may drink so that I do not have to come back to this place again? I just want to ask the question today. Are you in that place? 
Are you in a place where life is overwhelming? Are you in a place where life is frustrating? Are you in a place where things are are so overwhelming and so inundating and so frustrating and so debilitating and you feel like you keep getting ground and ground and ground by the circumstances of life and there's not enough time to do what needs to be done. There's not enough money to do what needs to be done. There's not enough of you left at the end of the day to meet everybody's never-ending demands of, of what they need or require from you. I'm just simply here to tell you today that if you are in that place. That's where this woman was. Jesus is saying, listen, I have something for you that's very different. The problem with this woman is that she's not just plagued by the culture that she's in, and she's not just plagued by the circumstance that she's found herself in. She's also plagued by her character. You see, she is a woman that has a story that is not desirable. There are things and decisions that she's made that, that, that nobody wants. Jesus says this, verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. And when she noticed what Jesus does here, because she's not lying, but notice what Jesus does. Jesus does here the same thing he does with all of us. Jesus bypasses all of the fluffy nonsense and he goes right to the area of your hurt. He goes right to the area of your pain. He goes right to the area of your affliction, not because he wants to point a finger of condemnation, but because he wants to reach a hand out and say, if you will take a hold of me, if you will trust me, I will lead you out of this place. I will get you out of this pit. I will get you out of this pain. I will pull you out of this misery and I will give you something very, very different. And what Jesus says to her, verse 18, uh, uh, he says, you have well said, I have no husband for you have have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. Jesus says, listen, yeah, you were right. You don't have a husband. You were honest about that. But what you weren't honest about was all of the stuff and all of the pain and all of the shame that you have in your story. We don't know a lot about her story, but we know the very fact that she tried to mislead Jesus tells us that she has shame from her story. But here's what I want you to see of Jesus. What is true of Jesus in this moment with this woman is true of Jesus in this moment in your life that you may have things in your story that you're ashamed of, but there's nothing in your story that Jesus is afraid of. There's nothing in your story, nothing in your background, nothing that you've said, nothing that you've done, nothing that has, been, that has happened to you. There is nothing in your story that is so terrible, that is so awful, that Jesus is somehow scared of it or afraid of it. Jesus says, bring it on, I got it. The woman answered to him, verse 19, which I think this is really funny. Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. I love the way the King James says it. Sir, I perceive thou art a prophet. Well, that would make sense, right? Like you start telling somebody all the things in their life that you haven't told them and they start like repeating it out back to you and you're like at the same time really impressed at the same time, like would you shut your mouth? Like I didn't say that out loud for a reason. I kind of don't want people to know about that, Jesus. What happens next is they spend some time talking about 
the patriarchs and, and how they used to worship in this area. And Jesus talks about a promise that's gonna come uh, for all of the people who belong to Jesus are gonna be filled with the spirit and how they are someday soon gonna worship God. And the woman picks up on all of this and says this in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. She goes, listen, I got it. I know, I know what the promise of the Old Testament is. I know that, that the Old Testament prophesied and promised about a savior, a rescuer, a redeemer that was one day going to come and going to lead Israel into great prosperity and great prominence. Like, I am fully dialed in. I get it. I understand it, Jesus. And when he gets here, like, he's going to tell us everything, and I can't wait. And what Jesus does next is he rocks our world. Because Jesus says next in verse 26, 26, I who speak to you am he. What? Sarah, I perceive you're more than a prophet. What does she do? Well, if you've been with us the last several weeks, you already know what she did. She does the same thing that anybody who ever has their life changed by Jesus always does, at least in the scriptures. She's got to go tell somebody. Notice what happens in verse 28. Then the woman left her water pot, water pot, went out into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all the things I ever did. Now listen, a woman who's been married this many times and is currently shacked up with a dude that she's not married to and she knows that that's not right, that's against God's law, it's against God's ways, right? Like, like this kind of woman doesn't normally like run around and go, y'all, let me tell you, y'all already know my stuff. Let me tell you about the dude who didn't know my stuff but know my stuff and said it out loud. Y'all come on, let me introduce you to him. This doesn't normally happen unless something has happened inside of her. And then she says, verse 30, uh, then it says, verse 30, that they went out of the city and came to him and many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him. Why? Why did they believe in him? Don't miss this. A woman who was plagued by her culture, a woman who was plagued by her circumstance, a woman who was plagued by her character, they believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all I ever did. And many more believed because of his own word. See, Jesus needed to go to Samaria. Jesus needed to meet a woman that nobody ever wants to meet. Jesus strolled through at the hottest part of the day when nobody walks because he knew that there would be a woman who nobody wants to walk with. And through this woman, an entire community came to faith in Jesus and their lives were changed forever. Catch this. They came because of her testimony. They stayed because of his teachings. But their life was changed because of their faith. This is how people who are far from God come to a relationship with him. People who share their testimony 
not ashamed of all I ever did because I am so changed by all that he has done in me. Now, what's interesting is, while the woman is off telling everybody, like, y'all gotta come see this dude. Like, he's done knowing all my whole story. Y'all know my story. We don't talk about it because I'm not proud of it. And y'all are kind of nice to me. You don't blame me for it and all that kind of stuff. I gotta tell you about Jesus. Like, while all that's happening, the disciples are out getting lunch. I love this. We got lunch, Jesus. We got Christian chicken. It's not Sunday. And they come back and the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, did you, did you eat lunch? And Jesus is like, I'm good. What's interesting to me is that they, they like double down on it. Like, Jesus, you need to eat. And I'm just curious, like at what point do you, when you realize that Jesus is the creator of heaven and earth, like, do you think he's not aware that it's lunchtime? What Jesus does here is so important. This, this verse gets, gets skimmed over so much, but it is one of the key verses to you experiencing victory in your life. Jesus says this in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You know what Jesus is saying? He said, listen, boys, here's what you gotta understand. He's talking to the disciples. He goes, listen, y'all gotta get this now. It's important that you get a good night's sleep. It's important that you, 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 you eat good, good balanced foods, healthy. Your body needs that stuff. But here's what you have to understand. This thing that God has called you to do, to go make disciples, it's not, it's not an optional thing. Like you don't get to like, I'm out on that one, Jesus. Right, like, like God doesn't give some people the gift of evangelism, some people the gift of discipleship so that we get to pick and choose what we do. No, no, no. When Jesus left, he commissioned all of us to go make disciples. We are all called to do this. But what Jesus is conveying here and he's modeling for us is listen, here's what you need to understand. The fuel, the nourishment, the sustenance for you to be able to do the things that God is gonna call you to do is only found in the fulfillment of obedience to God. You see, here's the problem. There are some things that you get called to do by God and you can't do it. And it's not that you can't do it because it's like, I, I, I don't want to, but you're like, God, I want to, but I'm not able. Can I tell you the reason why that we are oftentimes so anemic in our faith, so anemic when it comes to the things that Jesus calls us to do? It's because we miss the nourishment of simple obedience on a daily basis. God tells you, hey, you ought to pray for that person. All right, I, you know, I'm gonna pray for it. I'm, I'm gonna get to it, okay? I'm gonna get to it. I'm gonna think about it and then I, and I'll get around to it. Disobedience. Hey, I want you to go serve this person right over here. I, you know what, God, I would really love to, but my schedule and I got a meeting and then the, what had happened was and then, and then we go to bed and then, you know, you just forget about it. Disobedience. You're in a conversation with somebody. God says, hey, I want you to, want you to invite him to church or I want you to tell him your story. I can't do that, Jesus, not right now. Disobedience. Listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to, we don't like this kind of preaching because it's kind of preaching that's like, you know, preacher getting kind of heavy and like telling me to change something and redirect something and I gotta do this or that. No, 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 I'm not saying it. God, God's saying it. What I am saying 
is that the reason why we oftentimes don't have the spiritual strength to go through the hardships of life, the spiritual strength to feel like we're being overwhelmed in the storms of life, the spiritual strength to be able to bring reconciliation and healing and to bear with one another in our burdens in our marriages and our families and our neighborhood and our relationship context, the reason why we don't have the strength to be able to endure and get through these moments is because we are not consuming the food that nourishes us spiritually so that we can be strengthened by fulfillment of God through the process of obedience so that we have what we need when we walk into that tough situation. Jesus goes on and he says, do you not say there are four months when it, uh, there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are already white for the harvest. See, he's doing this whole physical, spiritual thing to try to help them understand something again. You see, they lived in an agrarian community. They look around, they see all of the crops and everything that would have been planted. And Jesus said, listen, y'all know it's still four months till the harvest, right? Like we agree, we understand that. Yeah, here's what I'm trying to tell you. I'm trying to tell you, lift up your eyes because the field is already ripened to harvest. What is he doing? He's not talking about a physical harvest of grain or olives or fruit or anything like that. No, 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 no. Jesus has made a, a spiritual shift now and he's trying to help them see, listen, if you would lift up your eyes, you would realize that the harvest is all around you. The harvest of people who are desperately longing for hope and peace and joy and forgiveness and freedom and the life that Jesus ultimately offers, it is, it is all around you for you to bring the harvest in of drawing people into Jesus. But you've got to have the eyes to see it. And if you never have the eyes to see it, well, then you'll never have the ability to do anything about it. And the people who are close to us, but far from God, miss the opportunity to know about the life change that Jesus wants to bring into them. You see, here's the deal. Jesus knows every single one of us he knows all of our hangups and issues, insecurities, or problems or questions. Not only does he know this about you, he knows this about the people who are close to you, but far from him. And what God wants to do is he wants to use you like this woman in Samaria to go tell somebody about your story. See, here's why this is so critical. Your story of life change and transformation is the evidence of God's goodness and mercy on display to the world. See, we've got to get to a point where we, we stop being scared of our story, ashamed of where we've been. If Jesus wasn't ashamed to come rescue you out of it, why would we be ashamed to tell somebody about it, to tell them if Jesus did it in me, he can do it in you? We've got to get to the point where we're willing to share our story with the world. So how do we prevent from becoming spiritual mules? Where we live, we work, we serve, we do all of the Jesus things, but without any of the reproduction, without any of the spiritual legacy. There's four things that I think that we need to do. Number one, we need to repent. This word repent is a biblical word. It means, to, it means to turn away and do the opposite of what you've been doing. We need to repent of spiritual apathy. 
the things that cause us to be disobedient to God in the small things, in the everyday things. We need to repent, say, God, I'm sorry that I've not been obedient. I'm sorry that I'm not doing that. I'm sorry that I'm not following where you're leading, becoming who you want to shape me and mold me into. We need to repent of the lack of spiritual awareness of what's going on around us. Jesus said, listen, lift up your eyes. The harvest is ripe. All are, there are opportunities all around you of people who just like this woman are, are longing and desperate for something different. And you have the opportunity not just to present something different, but to present something that is true, that is lasting, that is real. The second thing we need to do is we need to pray. In this series, we've been asking the question, who's your one? Who's the one person that you are hoping for and praying for would come to know Jesus, the person who is close to you, but far from God, who are you praying for? But we don't need, we don't need to just pray for our one. We need to pray for the world around us. We need to pray for our coworkers, for our, our, our neighbors, for our our. our, our the people we meet when we're sitting on the sidelines of our kids' activities, we need to pray for the world around us. Here's the third thing we need to do. We need to serve. Can I tell you that there's a lot of preconceived notions that the world has about Jesus and his followers? Some of those aren't true. Like it's not true what some of them say about us and about Jesus. But one of the most prevalent, most common things that, the, that the, the world out apart from Jesus associates with Jesus and with Jesus's people is that they serve people. Listen, it doesn't mean you gotta go on and you know accomplish some huge, major, incredible, time-consuming thing. Maybe it's that, or maybe it's just, hey, I see a need that I could easily meet. I'm going to go as a follower of Jesus to go meet that need. And when they say, thank you, I'm gonna say, God bless you. God loves you. Here's the fourth thing we gotta do. We've gotta listen. We've gotta listen. One of the best ways to be aware of our surroundings is to listen. And here's what's amazing about the kingdom of God. It's through listening that you change your vision. It's through listening that you change what you see. Instead of just seeing people and meetings, and teams, and departments, and neighbors, and kids, and workers. We start to see people that God loves, that he cares for, that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for and sent you to go tell them about it. I wanna show you something with something that I think will be helpful that as you live your life and you go about your day-to-day to be thinking about what am I listening for, right? Like I can listen all day long, but if I don't know what I'm listening for, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you something to listen for as you go throughout your life. And my hope is that, that these things would be something that would almost be like signals or sirens, that when you hear this, it triggers something inside of you to go, whoop, there's my chance, there's an opportunity. And I'm not gonna have to be like super weird about it, like kind of knock on your door, hi, we've never met before, can I spend the next three hours of your evening talking to you about Jesus? Like, I just gotta be honest with you, like I don't even want that. Like, I love you, but like, I probably planned on dinner and doing something with my kids or watching the Chiefs whip up on Tom Brady tonight. Like, I don't know. But there are three things that are frequently said by people that I wanna train you to listen for them so that you know what to do when you hear it. Here they are. 
When you hear one of the three knots, I want you to be triggered into action. Here's the first knot. I'm not in church. We used to go to church, but, you know, COVID or, or we used to go to church. I, I grew up going to church, but, you know, something happened, this, that, or the other, right? Like, it, it, it's okay. Let, we need to listen to their story. But when you hear that someone's not in church, then what they're saying is, is they're not connected fully to the life that God wants for them, whether they are a Christian or not. Here's the second knot. Things are not going well. Man, think, you know, I'm just really struggling with my kids or I'm really struggling with my, one of my parents had it diagnosed with this or I'm struggling with, with work or whatever, right? Things are not going well. When you hear that things are not going well, it's a trigger. Here's the third thing. I'm not prepared for this. Man, I just wasn't prepared for how hard this was gonna be. I wasn't prepared for all the stuff that was gonna come for this. I wasn't prepared. Nobody told me these things. When you hear these three knots that I'm not in church, I'm, things are not going well, I'm not prepared for this. And here's what I want you to be triggered by. I want you to be triggered when you hear that to simply say, man, I'm really sorry to hear that. Why don't you come sit with me? The reason why we print out these invites, leave them at the welcome tent, is to equip you and empower you to be on mission throughout your day to be used by God to change someone's life. You never know the impact that one invitation can have. Listen, I get it. Sometimes when we talk, think about trying to talk to people about Jesus, we do, we feel like used car salesmen. But listen, if you will listen for these three knots and train yourself to hear those and spring into action, just invite people. Hey, why don't you come sit with me? Why is that so powerful? Oh, there he is. There's preacher man trying to grow the church real big. no. Can I just tell you, I, I, don't, I don't really care if our church is big. I care about people going to heaven. I, spent, I had to spend a couple years wrestling through this because there was a part of me in pride, like if God was gonna send revival, then I wanna be like, God, send it through me. Send it through our church. But can I tell you, God's brought me to a point, if God wants to send revival to our city, I don't care who he starts it with. God wants to use the church in our city to bring revival to our city. I don't care if it's ours. I just want people to know Jesus, to experience his goodness. And every day you are with people that I don't know. You have trust and credibility and rapport with people that I will never have. Jesus did not go to Samaria to go find the preacher man. Jesus went to Samaria to find a real person with real problems and he presented her with real hope and it really changed her life. And because she was willing to share her story, it changed the life of an entire town. You see, when you invite people to come and sit with you, then I believe that what's gonna happen is that we're gonna see lives changed in the Northland. The way that John chapter four described life change in Samaria. How's it gonna work? It's gonna work like this. They'll come because of your testimony. 
They'll stay, not because Jesus showed up and teach. Like, Jesus, you can have the pulpit anytime you want it, by all means. They're not going to come because of what I say. They're going to come and stay because of what Jesus says through his teachings. I'm believing that they will come to faith and their life will be changed because of their faith in Jesus. In Samaria, it all started because Jesus needed to go to Samaria. Just let me ask you this question. At what point in your day, in your week, do you allow yourself to think, God, I know where my schedule says I'm supposed to be, and I know where I'm supposed to go for my work or for my kids or to run errands. God, would you show me where you need me to go? Because there's somebody there that you need me to meet? Because there's somebody there that you want to show a new and different and better life through my story? I'm gonna close this message by asking the same question I've asked in every message of this series. Who's your one? Who's your one? Maybe don't get overwhelmed by thinking about, oh my goodness, preachers telling me I gotta go change the whole city. No, I'm not telling you that. I am asking you to consider what if. What if through your testimony, God created a series of events that changed our city? In reality, all I'm asking you to do, who's your one that's close to you but far from God? How could you pray for them? How could you serve them? How could you listen to them and invite them to come and sit with you so that their life might be changed by Jesus like yours has been? At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, Text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.